It is time to get this party started. Welcome back to Lit for Christmas, the podcast where the books are full of Christmas spirits and so are the hosts. Join Marty and his friends as they drink their way through the great, and maybe not so great, works of Christmas literature. The fireplace is lit, the tree is lit, the hosts are lit. Grab a glass of something holly and jolly and join us as we get lit for Christmas again. Welcome back to the Lit for Christmas party. My name is Marty, and we are officially on the brink of the Burr months. September, October, November, and December. But it is still August, and my co-host and I are still hanging on to these last days of summer, these dog days. Drinking with me for this episode is the Jingle to my Bells, Clarice to my Rudolph, Della to my Jim, my lovely partner in Christmas capers for almost 30 years, my wife Beth. How are you feeling tonight, dear? Two drinks in and ready to rumble. Um, which was the theme of our wedding night, I think. I think so. <laughs> um, yes, our minds and glasses are full of Christmas lit. But before we get down to business, um, how has life been treating you, dear? Um, as Marvin Gaye says, what's going on? Well, I have a new job. Ah, yes. And on Tuesday, I start to do it um all by myself like um nobody's listening in on me and i'm i'm doing it all by myself and i'm i'm out of training and i get paid the regular pay and i have a regular schedule okay well are you going to tell them what this oh. job is or are you just going to leave it like a, is this a mystery <laughs> are we having pay 20 questions i'm a telephone operator okay so they call in and I take the message and route it where it needs to go. Okay. So my favorite thing about this job that you've been telling me is that you um, answer phones for a funeral home. Yes. Or several funeral Several homes? funeral homes and a couple of uh, pet cremation services, which is interesting because we get calls like the other day. <laughs> they got a call from a woman who needed to cremate. Her cats that were in the chest freezer. So, like, they just kept dying and she kept putting them in the chest freezer. So, I think maybe she had her cats in there with the Christmas ham. <laughs> um, That's my favorite story. Didn't happen to me, unfortunately. I wish it had, but it wasn't me. Uh, yeah. They, I mean, it's just... Um, I, I w And then there was a guy who wanted to... Was it cremate his mouse or pick up the remains of his mouse he wanted to pick up the remains of his mouse yes i know Why? we killed the bloody things yeah and we he are... wants to pick up the remains of his pet mouse i almost died somebody somebody wanted to somebody paid mm -hmm. to have their mouse burnt correct and then Put in some kind of urn yes. to take home with them. Correct. They paid money when we get them I, for free and kill them in the mouse traps. I, I, 
I don't, you know me, I don't understand that at all. If you can't tell, we're really drunk. We're going to get into this later. But Beth is like incredibly, she looks like she's ready to fall asleep <laughs> right now. I'm just, I'm just saying that. Um, yeah, she's just like, I don't know how long this podcast is going to last. It might be one of the shortest lit for Christmases on record because she looks like she's ready to fall off her chair. And um, I'm, I am currently sipping my, sipping very slowly my third of these drinks. Did you want to talk about what's going on with you, honey? Hmm. I suppose. I mean, um, well, it's the end of it's the end of uh, August, so of course I'm getting ready to start teaching again at the college, and um, you know, lots of stuff going on at uh, at the library where I work as well. But um, what I want to talk about tonight is one of the biggest fans of this this particular podcast, um, um, and who I want to dedicate this episode to. Um, um, my friend, um, Helen, who, um, has always loved this podcast and, and, uh, every, every episode, she always, um, texts me about how, how much she loves, uh, us, me getting drunk with my, my co-host when it was Amanda and then, and now Madeline and Beth. I mean, she's, she's, well, I've known Helen for over 30 years and she's just, um, always has always been one of my biggest fans. So, um, and, um, right at this moment, um, she is, um, she's in hospice care. So, um, I, uh, it, it's a difficult time, yes. you know, um, to, uh, to, uh, think about, uh, yeah, for me. So I, you know, this is, I was going to avoid this topic because, it's not really something that um, makes for makes Make for really Christmas lit. happy, 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 joy, happy. Joy. But of course, you know, Christmas is, for me. I always think that the most in, the the most effective Christmas lit that that exists, or Christmas movies, or whatever you want to say, are ones that sort of have that that um, sort of thread of some melancholy in it. But um, yeah. It's um it's difficult. It's a difficult time, and she's been struggling for a while. And um, I just um, I'm I'm lifting this episode up for her. She's um she like I said, she's been one of my biggest fans, and one of the biggest fans of this this podcast itself. She she loves this podcast. So um so yeah, that's that's what's going on in my life. Not. Like I said, not the most happy, happy, joy, joy thing in the world, but um, I think people need to know that um, she she is uh, she she's a she's a remarkable person, has always been a remarkable person, and Beth can attest to the fact that she is one of the most positive and happiest people that you would ever want to meet, one of right. the most joyful people. Right. So. Um, you know, um, Helen, this is for you. Um, I'm lifting my what's left of my third drink to you as as I say this, and um, I love you. And um, you know, um, I I I lift you up to the universe and um, and keep you keep you close. So 
yeah, that's 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 what's going on. Um, not not the happiest thing in the world. And so we've got the cremains of cats. Uh, no, cremains mice. of mice. Mm -hmm. Cats we've too. got a we've got a chest full freezer full of cats, and um, we have uh, my friend Helen who um who is just the most most wonderful person in the world. So, um, okay. Okay, before I start selling my hair to buy something for you, I think it's time. To find out what ghost of Christmas present is making us see double tonight. Come in, come in, Ebenezer Scrooge, and know me better, man. You're... I am the ghost of Christmas present. Spirit, take me where you will. My hubby and I have returned to the land of Scotch for tonight's beverage. It's a little cocktail called the Old Henry. And I know the last time you had Scotch, it didn't treat you all that well. You were in pretty rough shape the next day. How are you doing, honey? Um, it's it's a strong drink. Um, really, really strong drink. I'm feeling it. Um I, I don't know. I, I'm, I, I have a few, some, some alcohol that I drink makes me really kind of like sloppy, happy. Some of it, some, some alcohols make me sort of very sleepy. This one um, is sort of in between. It doesn't, uh, scotch does not, oh, I, well, scotch doesn't make me feel, um, you know, really, really happy, ha happy, sloppy, drunk. But it doesn't make me tired either. So, um, well, um, this particular drink that we're we're drinking tonight, it really doesn't have an extensive kind of history, um, as far as I can tell. Um, it first appeared in the 1930s in a book by um, by a guy named Harry Craddock, and the book was called the Savoy Cocktail Book. Um, and of course, I chose the drink because of its name. It's called the O. Henry. Um, however, one of the ingredients in the whole O. Henry, um, even though even though the the drink itself doesn't have a lot of um, extensive history, in fact, I don't even think it's really called the O. Henry because it's attached to the author that we're talking about tonight. It was just called the O. Henry for some reason. But one of the ingredients. Um, of the O. Henry um, is Benedictine. Um, and that in particular has a really, really sort of um, long history that goes back a long, long way. But let me talk about um, the ingredients um, for the O. Henry. Um, so the O. Henry consists of scotch. Um, now that now the ingredient, the, um, the recipe that I um, found for um, for the O. Henry, um, said that um, I should buy Dewar's twelve-year-old Scotch. Yeah, not gonna happen. Yeah, that's not gonna happen. Can't afford twelve-year-old. Well, not that. Not only that, but I don't like Scotch that much, so I'm not really Spend willing to pay. Um, but the most expensive ingredient that we bought, and that's part of this drink, is Benedictine. Um, and we had to go out. I thought we had Benedictine. We didn't. And um, Benedictine is like forty, forty, forty-three dollars a bottle. Um, and I that, had to go to two stores to get it. 
Well, and, and that's what I want to talk about tonight is the history of Benedictine, because we've already, I think in the episode that where we, where uh, Madeline and I talked about, um, talked about uh, the catcher in the rye, we talked about scotch. Um, so I want to, um, so, and scotch and soda, we talked about that. So, um, so what I want to talk about is Benedictine. So the O. Henry consists of scotch, Benedictine, and um, ginger ale. Um, and uh, so um, that's what we've been drinking. Beth has had about one and a half, and that's about all she can take. Um, and so I'm on about three and a half of these drinks. But anyway, so let me let me talk about Benedictine. So there's lots, there's a few different Benedictines. The one that we're I that we're drinking tonight is Benedictine DOM, um, which I'll, I'll let you know what DOM stands for. But it has a really really long history, and it's sort of a history that um, is sort of based on myth, and uh, it, I think it's between myth and actual fact as to where it came from. Okay, um, so. Um, the the history of Benedictine starts about the year 1510, um, and and it starts with a not surprisingly a Benedictine monk. Um, this Benedictine monk, and I'm going to totally totally slaughter all of these names tonight because again I'm three and a half drinks in, and um, I'm not I don't speak French, but um, the monk's name was Dom Dom Bernardo Vincelli. Who sounds like he belongs in the Godfather movies. I was just saying, sounds like a good Italian name. Mm -hmm. But he was at the Abbey de Fécamp in Normandy, France. Yeah. France. So Normandy, France. So um, Vincelli was, um, uh, was one of these monks, many monks, that um, who dabbled in alchemy. Oh. Alchemy, yeah. So, um, down stuff, right? Well, alchemy was about turning um, turning lead yeah. into gold. Okay. okay. Um, so anyway, he um, and he also made a bunch of different medicinal liqueurs, and um, he created this. Uh, he he wrote he recorded all these different recipes in a manuscript. There was over like um, two hundred recipes uh, from from this guy um, Vincelli, Vincelli, yeah, Vincelli. Um, in this recipe book. Um, and um, the original formula for Benedictine was this, like, it, which is an herbal liqueur. Um, uh, and, and supposedly what Vincelli said was it was a liqueur that was intended to revive oh, tired monks. Yeah, no. <laughs> I don't think so. Again, Beth, it looks like she's ready to fall asleep. Yeah, no so, reviving here. So anyway, in the 1860s, there was this wine merchant. And again, I'm going to screw up all these names. His name was Alexander Legrand or Legrand. And um, the, his family had, during the, in the 1789 um, French Revolution, had acquired lots of these different manuscripts from this abbey. And one of the manuscripts was Vincelli's manuscript with all of these different recipes in it. Uh -huh. So um, the recipe for Benedictine was incomplete in the book. So um, um, what what um, what was his name? 
What um, Legrand? Oh. What Legrand did was he um, tried to duplicate the recipe and, and sort of uh, had to fill in some of the stuff that was missing. And so he created this new recipe for Benedictine. And um, that's what that's what we have today is this recipe for Benedictine. Um, and he first sold it in 1863 and it began being imported into the United States around 1888. Um, and it was first produced at the again, I'm not I don't speak French, but the Pelage de la Benedictine near the original abbey where it was produced. And now the now the the brand of Benedictine is owned by Bacardi Limited. Oh, I know Bacardi. You know Bacardi. I know there, Bacardi. yes. Okay. So, um, um, the actual recipe for Benedictine is proprietary. So, if you look, grab the grab the bottle and look at the ingredients. What does it say on the ingredients there, Beth, for Benedictine? Um. I can't read it. Oh, Lord. Here we go. Okay. So the ingredients for Benedictine um, is, all it says is distilled and mellowed in an extravagant palace located in Fécamp, France, Normandy. And it says Benedictine is a subtle alchemy of 27 herbs and spices made from a secret recipe dating back to 1510. And pretty much that's all you got on there. It doesn't tell you what the herbs and spices are. It doesn't really tell you what goes into um what goes into it. So it's a, it's a proprietary recipe. Not a lot of people know what include what's included in those 27 herbs and spices, which sort of sounds like Kentucky fried chicken it to does. me. <laughs> I don't know how many Kentucky fried chicken. Hey, don't but talk about it anymore. Anyway, um uh, from ever all my research, uh, what it looks like is it says that um, Benedictine, it's believed to include um, hyssop, lemon balm, juniper, aloe, arnica, and cinnamon. But those are just guesses as to what goes into it. Nobody really knows what's what's into the recipe, what goes into the recipe of Benedictine. Um, in fact, the brand only reveals um, that it includes angelica and saffron, and doesn't doesn't say what what anything is. So that, um, but it takes almost a year to make a bottle of Benedictine. Oh. Um, so there's 27 ingredients. They're divided into four groups. And each group is combined with neutral spirits, distilled once or twice in copper stills and um, creates four different distillates, um, which are called esprits. Oh, that was like a clothing brand back in the day. Back was, in the day. That was really, yeah, it was really big in Germany in the 80s. Yeah, it was a brand. Okay. Oh, yeah. Well, this is what goes into Benedictine. Um, so the esprits are aged for eight months and then they're blended with honey oh. for flavor and infused with saffron for color. Oh, we love some saffron up here. And then it's double heated and uh, to finish the flavor before going into oak barrels where it's aged for four months. Um, oh. 
and and then uh, before it's before it's bottled, everything is sort of um, dis, uh, is sort of filtered. So that's how that's where Benedictine came from. It's a really old kind of liqueur, um, and um, and it's sort of mysterious um, as to what actually it tastes like. And and Beth hates the taste of this drink. She's not a big fan. And I, I'm I'm right now schwitzing. Um, I don't know if it's because because of the drink or it's because it's a little warm in the house. It is the end of August, and so it's a little it's a little humid in the house. But um, the the particular brand that we got was Benedictine Dom. I guess there are other different a few other different brands of Benedictine, but um, the original is Benedictine Dom, and Dom. Um, is is basically um, uh, an abbreviation for Deo Optimo Maximo, um, which translates into God infinitely good, infinitely great. Um, and it's I, I guess that the DOM is supposed to remind everybody of um, the liqueur's actual um, actual origins in the French Normandy Abbey in the 19, oh, in the 1510s. I think that's what it is. Okay. So, so as much as I know you like talking about spirits. and I do, I, I do love talking about I spirits. Do think and I love drinking spirits as well. I do think it's time to move on to the other spirit that's haunting the podcast tonight. Really? Yes, really. All right. Ebenezer Scrooge, I have come for you you, you are the spirit, sir, whose coming was foretold me. I am that spirit. What are you? I am the ghost of Christmas past. Long past? No, your past. Tonight, we are talking about a true Christmas classic. If you haven't guessed it already, it is the short story, The Gift of the Magi, um, but um, and it's by O. Henry, mm -hmm. so that's why we are drinking a drink o. called Henry. O. Henry. Mm -hmm. um, by the way, there's no real connection between O. Henry the writer and O. Henry the drink. It's just the name. Um, but before we start talking about the tale of Della and Jim, um, Beth, why don't you give us a little bit of background on tonight's Charles Dickens, who is um, O. Henry? Well, his real name was William Sidney Porter. He was born in Greensboro, North Carolina on September 11th, 1862. He died in New York City on June 5th, 1910. He was 47. Wow, he's really young. I know, right? Well, hard drinking will do that to you. <laughs> yeah, that's the another reason. Oh, Henry fits right into this podcast, but go ahead. He was known for his short stories, but he also wrote poetry and nonfiction. I've never read a poem by O. Henry. Well, that's what just they told me. I okay. don't know if it's true, but that's what they said. Well, I'm sure it's true, but I've never read a poem. Um, he's actually um, he's buried in Riverside Cemetery in Asheville, North Carolina. In North Carolina. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, he went by uh, several pen names. Um, uh, three of them that I found were the name O. Henry, Olivier Henry, and Oliver Henry. I mean, he went by... Where, where did these names come from? Um, well, uh, 
Am I jumping ahead? No, it's okay. I can go there. Okay. Um. So, well, you have to know that he, um, because uh, he was a banker, and he, um, at the Bank of Austin when he lived in Austin. He was a terrible banker. Yes, though. he was because <laughs> he was uh, careless in keeping his books. And, Which is um, not good for a banker. Exactly. In, in 1894, he was accused of embezzlement and lost his job. So you have to know that that's important because he went to the Ohio Penitentiary in Columbus. Ohio Penitentiary. Yes. So. So he was he was convicted of embezzlement. He was. And he was sentenced to like like five, five years. years. He okay. only served three and a half though, or three years, three months because of good behavior. Okay. And um but but the thing is is that it probably what he probably really didn't embezzle. It was probably just that he really sucked at um keeping accurate records, right? Um well, they said that they said that he embezzled $854.08. That's what they Who's said. That? Who's they? Well, I don't know. The you people know, people who run the bank say, I just think he was a terrible record keeper. And I mean, was he drinking at the time that he was a banker? I wonder. I'm guessing he drank all the time. <laughs> <laughs> Not just when he was a banker, but all the time. Uh, let's see. What am I? Um, well, how he came by the name O. Henry. Yeah. Mm. Oliver Henry or whatever. Um. She's flipping through I her notes as we're through my speaking. many pages. I wasn't. And again, let me re remind people that she is really, really feeling drunk tonight. Uh, let's. I'm sorry. I, I I can't find it right now. Oh, I got it. I got it. Okay, she's got it. Okay, so um, I the reason he adopted his pen name was because he didn't think his stuff was worth any any anything, so he wanted an alias. So he asked his friend to help, and they got a newspaper and looked at the society columns. He saw Henry and thought that would be a good last name. This is a, a newspaper. Uh, he gave this interview, and this is what he said. He said that he thought that Henry would be a good last name. And then the friend said, why don't you just use a plain initial? So he said, O is about the easiest letter to write, so O it is. Then there's a gentleman who wrote... The World of O. Henry, Roads of Destiny, and Other Stories in 1973, William Trevor. William Trevor. He said there was a prison guard named Orrin Henry when um, Oliver Henry, when O. Henry was in prison. So they think that he immortalized him as O. Henry. Or the, another theory is that there was a name of a French pharmacist, Etienne Ocean Henry. <laughs> really? Say that again. <laughs> I'm not going to say it again. <laughs> so that they're the pharmacist's <laughs> <laughs> name is in the U.S. dispensary. And O. Henry, when he was in jail, he was actually a pharmacist. He started in when he was 19, he got a pharmacist license. So he worked in the pharmacy at the jail. So he would have had, he would have had, um, he would have been able to get a hold of this U.S. dispensary and see that person's name in there. So they think that it comes from that. Or this gentleman, Guy Davenport, who is a writer and a scholar, says that it comes from the first two letters in Ohio and the second and last two letters of penitentiary. 
So, so which one is it? I don't know. There are different theories. So wait a minute. So he was working as a banker, but he was a trained pharmacist. He was a pharmacist before he worked as a banker. So why didn't he just stick with pharmacy? Um, because he he moved to New York City to write. So, but that was after he was in, he he was convicted of embezzling, right? Uh, uh, hang on a second. Let me just get my thoughts straight here. Um, and he was 19 in, um, in, in 1881, he was licensed as a pharmacist. Okay. Then he moved to Texas in March of 82. Why did he move to Texas? Because, um, he hoped that the change of, he had a persistent cough and he was hoping that the change of TB. No, he didn't have TB. Okay. He was hoping that the change of air would, would help this persistent cough that he okay. developed. He did improve from that. So, um, uh, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, he moved well, to Texas before he went bezel. He right, was convicted right. of embezzling. Right. The reason that he moved to Texas was to help him with his health. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. So, um, then he started at the first bank in 1891. Um, I don't know why he stopped being a pharmacist. He never really stopped being a pharmacist. He just um, got into this other job because, like, it was better hours or something, mm. and he could make as much money as a, like he could make as much money, and it was like better hours. Than was he writing at the same time, or was he? He's always been writing. He wrote since he 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 liked to read stories when he was younger, mm. and he started writing, you know, like way back when he was young. So when did he did he start publishing when he was young too? Um, he started. Um, he worked. Uh, when he moved to. Um, he he worked on a humorous weekly called the Rolling Stone, which was a satire on life, people, and politics. It had his short stories and sketches on it. Was that, that when was, he was in Texas? That was yep. That was when he was in Austin. And of course, Rolling Stone has nothing to do with Rolling Stone magazine. Correct. It was Correct. just a different yeah. Correct. So he moved to Houston in 1895, okay. and he was um he he was gathering. He liked to go to hotel lobbies and talk to people and observe them. And that was something that he used throughout his career. He mm -hmm. liked to he liked to get to know people and talk to them. And he that was his inspiration for his stories, like normal working people. Okay. So um oh yeah, then well he when he embezzled, he wasn't actually indicted when he was when he lost his job. Then in um then in uh when he moved to Houston then there was a federal indictment that led to an arrest. So he fled to Honduras and he lived there until January of 1897. He actually wrote his book, Cabbages and Kings, in a Trujillo hotel. Okay. Yeah. So, um, oh, we never mentioned that he had family. We didn't go there. Yeah. Well, we we'll... have to go back a little bit. Okay. Let's go back a little bit. So his parents were Algernon Sidney Porter. And he was a physician. His mom was Mary Jane Virginia Swain Porter. And apparently she was like a poet and a writer too. So he was, she inspired his work. Um, there, There's different versions of what happened to his mother when she died. Some people say that she died giving birth to her third child. Some people say she died of TB. So not sure which is which. Like I said, I got conflicting accounts. But I do know that he had two baby brothers. So he was the oldest? 
Uh, he was in the middle. Oh, he was in the middle. His okay. brother, um, which is really hard to understand because, oh, hang on, hang on. They were married in 1958, his parents were. He had two, in 1958? 1858. 1858. Sorry. Okay. Um, he had two brothers, Sidney Worth, who was born in 1860, and Daniel Weir, who was born in 1865. There were two kids. There was Sidney Porter and Sidney Worth. Uh, no, Sidney Worth is his middle name. Okay. And Daniel Weir is his middle name. Yeah, but but well, O. Henry's real name is Sidney Porter. Right. That's their middle names, honey. Sidney Worth as is their first and middle name. And Daniel Weir is their first and middle name. Um, oh, Henry's real name is William Sidney. Oh, William Sidney. Okay, yes. got it. I'm sorry. I was thinking whatever. Okay. So his, the brothers died when they were in early childhood. So he's the only one that survived. Uh, he, he, um, historians believe he met his wife, Alto. Is that how you say it? How do you spell it? A-L-T-H-O-L. A L T H O L Alpha Alpha I have no idea. Anyway, Alpha. her name was let's just say Alpha for the sake of argument. Um, she was seventeen when they met, and she was from a wealthy family. Some historians say they met at the laying of the cornerstone of the Texas State Capitol on March second of eighty five. The Texas State Capitol is what? Austin. Okay. Um, and on. On July 1st of it, oh, his mother did not like the arrangement because um, Alpha was ill at the time. So they eloped on July 1st of 1887. They were actually married in the parlor of the home of the pastor where the family attended church. So the pastor of the church was okay with them getting married, but his parishioner, the mother, was not okay with them getting married. That makes sense? Yeah, I suppose. Okay, so they had a son in 1888 who died hours after birth, and their daughter, Margaret Worth Potter, was born in September of 1889. And she lived. She lived. For a while, but she divided, she uh, died of TB eventually. I right. Think. She had a, um, she, um, uh, she um, had a short writing career from 1913 to 1916. She got married and um, divorced her husband four years later, and then she died of TB in 1927, and she was buried next to her father. Right. So, um, he, like I said, he wrote Cabbages and Kings in the after he um, was in Honduras. He sent his family to Austin to live with her parents, but she was, uh, but Alpha was too ill to meet him in Honduras. So when he heard that she was dying, he returned to Austin. Then he surrendered to the court, found guilty on um, on June 17th of 1898, and he got five years in the Ohio Penitentiary in Columbus, Ohio, which we have already talked about. Yeah. Okay. His wife, Alpha, died on July 25th of 1897. While he was in prison? Uh, he... Yeah, no, right before they let him stay out of prison while she was alive. Okay. And as soon as she was dead, then they convicted him and sent him to prison. Well, that was friendly. I know, right? <laughs> so he actually had 14 stories published under various names while he was in prison. And to not let the publishers know that he was in prison, he had a friend in New Orleans, give his stories to the publishers so they wouldn't have any idea that he was in prison. 
He, like I said, he was released on July 24th of 1901 for good behavior. In 1902, he moved to New York City to be near his publishers. That was a very prolific time for him. He wrote 381 short stories. He was amazing. Stories. He wrote a lot of stories. He wrote a story a week for over a year for the New York World Sunday Magazine. He had a, like a regular column or something for them, I think. Yeah, I think so. And from what I read, he was paid like $100 a week yeah. for this column. Right. So, yeah, which yeah. is like, um, That's like amazing. most people in a year made like $3,000 or something like that. So he was making bank big mm -hmm. time. In 1907, he married his childhood sweetheart, Sari or Sala Lindsay Coleman. Um, she was a writer. And um, she, uh, um, she left him in uh, she left him in 1909 because well partly because of his drinking. He was a huge drinker. He was a heavy and, drinker. And it, most of his life, he was a drinker. By 1908, his health was deteriorating so much that it affected his writing. Yeah. And he died on June 5th of 1910 of cirrhosis of the liver, complications of diabetes, and an enlarged heart. Mm. Yeah. Um, so as we're talking here and we're drunk, we're talking about O. Henry who died from complications from drinking. So kids, don't drink. That's the lesson we have to give you today. Anybody listening <laughs> to this? And I mean, I mean, he, I mean, he literally drank. I mean, and he was like, he, he was not very discriminating. I mean, he drank everything. Right. Um, there was, um, I mean, one of the, one of the, um, uh, bartenders at, at the bar, Pete's Tav Tavern, something like that. Well, that's where he wrote. Didn't you find that out where he wrote the gift of the Magi? You didn't find it? I didn't that? find out. Uh, I didn't find out exactly where, no, I didn't find any information on where he wrote it. Just uh, that it wasn't. Oh, no, well, I'm sorry. Would you like to tell the story? Well, we'll talk about that when we get to the story. But um, I think it was Pete's, uh, I wish you'd gotten that name because I can't remember the actual name of it. Um, but Pete's Tavern, it was one of the oldest, um, it's, it's one of the oldest uh, um, still operating taverns in New York City. And it was one of his favorite hangouts. And supposedly he had a, an apartment across from Pete's Pete's Tavern and one of the bartenders at at this at this place knew that O. Henry was working because when he was working on a short story, he would always order a bottle of scotch over to his apartment from the tavern so that um, they would know that he was working because he drank scotch like an entire bottle of scotch when he was writing something. So, no, sadly, I did not find any information like that. Uh, wow. I don't know that that would necessarily be significant. As into well, the it story. is because supposedly he wrote. Well, there's two versions of where he wrote oh, uh, the gift of the Magi. Did you find out the history of the gift of the Magi? She, um, the way she's looking at me, it? no, she didn't. Uh, so, well, was um, I no. supposed to talk about his history? Well, both. You well, usually do. There's two versions of of where he wrote or how he wrote um, The Gift of the Magi. Um, so he w he had this contract with, what was it, New World? Uh, the, the name of the... Oh, the pu publish? Yeah, 
where he was getting a hundred dollars a week. Uh, New New York World Sunday. New York World Sunday. So he had this like weekly contract where he was getting paid a hundred dollars a week for for an account, and he was one of these people that um, he wrote under the gun always. He wrote. I mean, he, he deadlines were his thing where he waited until the very last minute and then wrote something. Well, the the New York World, whatever it was. Um, some of the people there decided that questioned whether he was worth a hundred dollars a week. And so they canceled his contract. And he thought that when, when they canceled his contract, he thought that he was done writing for them. Well, well, the people at new world or whatever the name of the publication was, um, were holding him to his contract, which means that he had to deliver a story for their Christmas issue in December, December 10th or something like that. So they sent uh, some some young boy from the paper. And the, here's, here's where the two versions, it seems like there's always like two versions of stuff with O. Henry where you're never sure which one is which. Mm-hmm. One of the versions is that this this person from the, the newspaper came knocking on his door um, and said, you owe us a, a short story. And O. Henry, in the space of three hours in his apartment, sat down and wrote the entire uh, story, The Gift of the Magi, and gave it to him for for publication. That's one of the versions of the story. Mm -hmm. The other version of the story is that O. Henry was getting drunk in this tavern, Pete's Tavern, which is, again, and and Pete's Tavern to this day has a little plaque up um, in, in there by the table that says, oh, Henry wrote the gift of the Magi here. And this this person from the newspaper came to the tavern where he was getting drunk or was drunk or whatever and said, you owe us a story. And oh, Henry sat down and in the space of like two or three hours wrote the gift of the Magi in this bar and gave it to him. So there's two versions of where, how the gift of the Magi came about. Um, Both of them involved his contract coming to an end and him believing that he didn't owe them a story and them coming to him and saying, oh, yes, you owe us a story for Christmas, our Christmas issue. And either he wrote it in his apartment, um, completely drunk out of his mind, or he wrote it in this bar, completely completely drunk drunk out out of his mind. mind. One or the other. Okay. So there you go. Okay. Um. What else do you want to know? His his first collection, um, his first collection of uh, short stories, um, was Cabbages and Kings, um, which was published in Hunter while he was in Hunter. Right, and it had um, it had uh, characters with a Honduras background, and the title apparently was inspired by Lewis Carroll's poem "The Walrus and the Carpenter." Um. He, uh, it says that, um, he wrote a lot of his stories were set in his, in the 20th century. Um, he loved New York city, which he called Baghdad on the subway. Mm-hmm. And he says a lot of story, a lot of stories were set there and others are set in small towns or in other cities. And like I said, they feature the working class characters and, um, his, uh, his final work was Dream, a short story intended for the magazine The Cosmopolitan, but it was never completed. One of the 
one of the I've read in a couple places that one of his funniest books was a one of his funniest stories was a story called Ransom of Red yeah, Chief. See, that's one of his most famous. Yeah. You know what that's about? Yeah, it's about a kid who gets kidnapped by these two guys and he makes their life so miserable that they end up giving him back or something like they that. They ask the father to they give the father two hundred and fifty dollars to the boy. And then there's another uh there's another story that's called Cop and the Anthem. And this one was actually made into uh, um, it was made into a it was in a film. But let me just you know do you know about that one? Mm-hmm. Cop in the Anthem um, was talking about a New York City hobo named Soapy. He wants to get arrested so he can stay in jail instead of sleeping outside. Mm-hmm. He wants you know he has to get three square and to be so um, he he tries everything. He tries to flirt with the prostitute. He tries petty crimes. He tries everything. Well, then he's like just despondent that he can't get arrested for anything. So then he's sitting down in the front of the steps of church and he hears this organ music and it so inspires him he's going to change his ways. He gets charged for loitering and he gets sentenced to three months in prison. Isn't mm. that how it always is? I don't know about that, but <laughs> okay. Um, in O'Henry stories, maybe. Yes, in O'Henry. So um, there's, there's other stories that I read about of retrieve reformation which was um uh, that's uh it talks about a bank robber who was recently freed from prison and um he has his bank robbing tools with him he's going to return them to an associate and um as it happens he was happened to be in the bank when a boy got stuck in the vault so one of the lot one of the guards there recognized him and knew that he was one of the guys that was going to rob it so he actually has to take out his safe robbing tools to get this kid out of the vault. But the lawman thankfully gave him a break and didn't turn him in. Okay. Yes. Makes sense. Yeah, I guess. Okay. okay. Um, and then there, oh, the most, his most famous character, Cisco kid was, was introduced in the story Caballero's way. It was first published in 1907 in the July issue of Everybody's Magazine, and it was also collected in the book Part of the West the same year. Um, in in TV, like in later TV and film depictions, he would be portrayed as a dashing adventurer, skirting the edges of the law, but mostly on the side of the angels. But in the original, the only story by by um by O. Henry to feature the character, the kid is a murderous, ruthless border desperado whose trail is dogged by a heroic Texas ranger. So nothing like how he was portrayed in the movies. Like I, I told you earlier that Cop and Anthem was, um, it was a film, five stories collected were, five stories collected were called O. Henry's Full House. And that was the one that received the most critical acclaim. Um, Charles Lawton and Marilyn Monroe were in that movie. Mm-hmm. Okay. There's actually an opera in one act called The Furnished Room based on his story of the same name. Um, there are a couple places that are at Texas State University called O. Henry Hall and O. Henry House. O. Henry Hall is now owned by the Texas State University system, and it was actually the federal courthouse in which he was convicted of embezzlement. The O. Henry House is where the O'Henry Panoff, the annual spoken word competition inspired by his love of language, has been going on there since 1978. 
Just a few more things. In 1962, the Soviet Postal Service issued a stamp for his 100th birthday. Mm. Not to be outdone, the United States Postal Service issued one on September 11th of 2012 on the 150th anniversary of his birth. I thought this was interesting. Um, there have been applications for a pardon for him. Because he was, you know, he didn't have any convictions when he first, he didn't have any convictions prior to the embezzlement. You know, he ended up being a helpful citizen and he ended up, um, you know, contributing to the to the United States and contributing as a writer. Um, there's actually been uh, pardons. Um, there's actually been pardons entertained by Woodrow Wilson, Dwight Eisenhower, Ronald Reagan, and others, including President Obama. And, but it remains ungranted. Hmm. So he's still, but they've tried to bring it up like all the time and it still remains ungranted. So um, in 2021, the Library of America included um, O. Henry in their list by publishing a collection of 101 of his stories. After his death, many things were published. I got a list of um, a list of three and then there were like four and then there were like two. So a lot of stuff got published after his death. Hmm. And that's about all I have for you. How did he die? He died of cirrhosis. He died of he died. Uh, I don't know exactly. I, I don't know exactly how he died. They didn't say like a like heart here. attack or something. Oh, he died in uh, he died in 1910 when he was 47. 1910, 47 yeah. years old. Yeah, and probably drank himself to death. They didn't say like he had a heart attack, or they just said it was um something that had happened because probably of cirrhosis drank complications himself to death. And, uh, he was he was a hard drinker his whole life. I mean, he made he pulled no bones about that. I mean, he liked to drink. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there is this really famous quote, and I'm not going to be able to give it to you verbatim, where a doctor was sort of telling him that he needed to, that what was wrong with him, and he said, "Yeah, I know. I I eat too much. I drink too much. I smoke too much. But other than that, I'm fine. <laughs> Something like that. Mm -hmm. So yeah, he was. He just lived a very hard, hard life. Mm -hmm. um, and um, you know, and and he had a lot of tragedy, a lot of difficulty in his life as well. Right. So anyway, okay. Well, um, there you go. There's the biography of uh, O. Henry." So I think everyone is pretty familiar with the plot of the story we're going to talk about tonight, The Gift of the Magi, um, it, and it's been adapted and and um, and into many times in TV and film. Um, there was a, a 1958 musical adaption on TV. There was a 2010 Hallmark, Hallmark movie um, based on The Gift of the Magi. And of course, there's things like Emma Daughter's Jug Band Christmas. Christmas, which pretty much uses the same premise as the Gift of the Magi. Um, the Muppets use the Gift of the Magi for a Sesame Street episode, and um, and the Walt Disney Company used it for Mickey's Once Upon a Christmas. So I could go, you know, like on and on. I mean, there's so many adaptations of the Gift of the Magi, and and different the mystery science theater used the Gift of the Magi um, in one episode. Um, so um, the Gift of Magi is just one of those classic Christmas stories that's constantly being reinvented, reused. Um, so um, my question is, what? What what do you think of the gift of the Magi, Beth? I 
I read it. I, I read it such a long time ago and I read it, you know, again, just before we did this podcast. And I mean, it's just, uh, it's an amazing, amazing story about how much you love, how much they loved each other, mm -hmm. you know, uh, just that they would give up things that were so precious to them in order to give them to each other. Well, I, I mean, we're assuming that everybody knows the plot of The Gift of the Magi, but maybe we need to go over what the plot is for The Gift of the Magi. Of course, what what it starts out is, is that you have this young couple mm -hmm. living in New York City. Very poor. A very not, not doing well. I think he makes $20 a week or something like that. The husband does. Um, and their names are Della and Jim. And, um, and, uh, the, it's right at Christmas time that I think it's the day before Christmas mm -hmm. and, um, Della has been saving for many, many months to try to buy Jim a good Christmas present. And she's only been able to save a dollar and 87 cents. And that's a really significant number because people who visit O. Henry's grave, um, it, well, the first paragraph is. Um, $1.87. That was all. This is a direct quote. And 60 cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with the silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implied. So it starts out with the fact that she's only saved this much money and people go to O. Henry's grave and leave literally $1.87 on his headstone all the time. And and a lot of the time there's 60 cents and pennies there. And I guess it's it's so such a consistent practice that um, they collect the money that's left at O. Henry's grave and they donate it to a local um, library or charity or something like that for that's libraries. So yeah. anyway, that, that, that amount is really significant. But anyway, so Della's only been able to save this much money after months and months and months of scrimping and, you know, um, and everything. And she still hasn't received enough money. So the, this couple has two prized possessions. One of them is Della's beautiful hair. She has a beautiful she has beautiful hair that like falls down to, I think it says her knees or something like that. It's long, really long and beautiful. Right. And the other thing that's that they treasure they have that's a treasure to them is um, Jim's watch, which was belonged to his father and also his grandfather. It's a beautiful, beautiful pocket watch. So those are the two prized possessions that um, the couple. Um, uh, claim. And so Della, in desperation, because she so wants to buy Jim something special for Christmas, decides I'm going to cut my hair off and sell it. So she goes and she sells her hair and gets $20 and then spends the afternoon shopping for for Jim's present and eventually finds a um, a a chain, a pocket watch chain for this beautiful watch that he owns and pays $21. So she takes the $20 from her hair plus a dollar from that a dollar out of the dollar 87 that she had saved and pays for this watch. So she's all excited. She comes back home and then curls her hair, thinking that Jim might be upset that she's cut her hair. And Jim comes in and is totally flabbergasted and aghast by the fact that her hair is gone. And she, th she thinks it's because 
um, he loved her. The only reason that he loved her was because of her hair or something like that. Now, when I was when I was reading about the story, I did find one account that said there was a that, that this is just one annotation that I found that said he may have been confused by the fact that she had short hair. He may have he may have had that look on his face because he didn't he thought he went into the wrong apartment. Well, uh, either That's that, theory that I read. either that, or he was just like totally aghast because of what he had bought her for Christmas right, too. Was uh, well, we're getting to that. Oh, sorry. So anyway, um, she tries to tell Jim, you know, oh, I'm, uh, you know, my hair will grow back fast. I hope you still love me. And then Jim says, of course, I still love you. You know that that your hair, you know. They, whether your hair is long or short, you know, it doesn't matter. And then he, he brings out his gift that he had gotten for her. And of course this, the, his gift were these beautiful combs for her hair that she'd been admiring in a shop window on Broadway for, for months and were very expensive. And she never thought that she was going to get They're them. like tortoise shell or something like <clears throat> that? I don't they remember were, what they, they are. Were, I imagine they were like, opalescent and right really really pretty so anyway she gives he gives her the combs and she sees them and loves them and then bursts into tears because you know she cut her hair and then she tells him well oh you know i my hair will grow back and then she says wait i've got your present and then goes and gets this um platinum there it's a platinum uh, watch chain and goes and gives it to jim and then jim sits down and sort of laughs because it turns out that he sold. It didn't, it didn't say he laughed. It says that he put his head in his hands. Um, wait, I will read you what it says. Just a second. Um, um, Jim had not yet seen his beautiful present. She held it out to him eagerly upon her open palm. The dull, precious metal seemed to flash with the reflection of her bright and ardent spirit. Isn't it a dandy, Jim? I hunted all over town to find it. You'll have to look at the time a hundred times a day now. Give me your watch. I want to see how it looks on it. Instead of obeying, Jim tumbled down on the couch and put his hands under the back of his head and smiled. Ah, I thought, I only read that he put his hands on the back. Oh, so I thought he was upset. Okay. Oh, oh, well, smiled. thank you for correcting me, Mr. Smarty Pants. And then he says, Dell. Said he, let's put our Christmas presents away and keep them a while. They're too nice to use just at the present. I sold the watch to get the money to buy your combs. And now suppose you put the chops on because he's she's making pork, uh, chops. pork chops for him, for them for Christmas dinner. Yeah. So there's this whole irony of the fact that she sold her hair. He bought her combs. And she bought him a watch chain for a watch that he sold to get her the combs. So that's that's the classic, oh, classic you know, O. Henry twist. Ending. Well, and that's where O. Henry comes into a lot of criticism by like what by literary critics who find that these twists at the end of stories are a little too, you know, too much. You know that that though those kind of O. Henry endings are not very in fashion or, or in vogue. And so that's where he gets criticized a lot. And of course, but, that's um, why we like it so much. 
Well, I don't know if it's that's why we like it. I mean, I think it really works well with the gift of the Magi. And of course, at the ransom of the Red Chief, where he the kid the kidnappers beg the father to take the kid back. Of course, those kinds of things. But he was oh Henry was famous for those kinds of plot Listen, twists yeah. at the end. And of course, people criticize him for that. But anyway, so you have this whole twist at the end of the gift of the Magi where these two people who love each other so much sacrificed the most important thing that they owned for each other. And that's the whole thing where you get this really beautiful final paragraph um, uh, where, where, um, where O. Henry sort of sums it all up, right? Um, she, he's, this is the last paragraph, and I have to read it because it's so beautifully written. Um, and again, remember that O. Henry wrote this story under the gun for three hours. He he sat down and wrote this story because it, he had a deadline to meet. And he was probably fairly drunk when he did this. But he wrote after after that last um, last sent, uh, quotation from Jim, where he says, now suppose you put the chops on. This is what O. Henry writes. The Magi, as you know, were wise men wonderfully wise men who brought gifts to the babe in the manger. They invented the art of giving Christmas presents. Being wise, their gifts were no doubt wise ones, possibly bearing the privilege of exchange in case of duplication. And here I have lamely related to you the uneventful chronicle of two foolish children in a flat who most unwisely sacrificed for each other the greatest treasures of their house. But in a last word to the wise of these days, let it be said, of all who give gifts, these two were the wisest. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are, the, uh, such as they are wisest. Everywhere they are wisest. They are the Magi. It's just a really beautiful, you know, sort of moral to the story at, um, at the end. Um, and just really beautiful writing. I mean, um, you know, you can't argue with O. Henry's ability to shape and craft words into really elegant, elegant prose. And um, just, I, I mean, I think I still am... Every time I read that ending paragraph, it's very affecting. I think that, um, you know, that that idea, maybe it, you know, and, and I, I think that's why it's resonated so much over the years, that idea that at Christmas time, the thing that is most important is the sacrifices that we make. Do you think we need to explain what the gift of the Magi was? Do you think there was anybody out there? Who well, I don't know. I mean, if you're listening to a Christmas prod podcast, most people know that the Magi brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Okay. Um, so, but what, baby Jesus. what he's saying, and of course, here's the thing with the real Magi, that gold, frankincense, and myrrh probably weren't great sacrifices for them because they were wealthy, probably. Mm -hmm. um, they, they were either wealthy astrologers or they were wealthy kings. That came in in the tradition of the biblical narrative of the birth of Jesus Christ. Um, that's that's who they are. But here are two people that have no money and no way to really um, give the gifts that they want to give. 
who make sort of ultimate sacrifices for each other um, because of love. And that's the whole crux of the story. And I think that's why the story has um, lasted as long as it has and why it's his most famous short story. He wrote over 400 short stories. And this is the one that if you say the name O. Henry, that Everybody most knows, people yeah. will will know. So, um, and, and, and most people, even, even those critics who criticize O. Henry for his sort of twist endings and everything like that, most critics will say that um, The Gift of the Magi is, is one of those, is a, is a, a classic. Mm-hmm. It's a classic story that, um, that really um, has a pretty impactful message to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's why, you know, it's been remade and redone. Like Emmett, oh, your favorite, Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, you know, where Emmett like sells his mom, puts a hole in his mom's wash tub, which she uses to make money with, does laundry with. And she hawks Emmett's uh, tools that he uses to do odd jobs with to make money. So it's this, they, they sort of make these sacrifices for each other out of love because they want to be able to give each other the thing that, that they, they know that the other person wants the most. Um, so, um, I don't, I don't know. I think it's a really beautiful story. Um, uh, it's, it's, you know, and especially with a story that is so, is so familiar Mm -hmm. and so redone so much it's really easy to overlook the power of the original um, story and why it why it is such why it's lasted and is such and and is sort of ingrained in you know the the whole tradition of Christmas mm-hmm. so much. Um, it's just um, I don't know I I I I don't use the term perfect very much. Mm-hmm. when it comes to any kind of literary work because I don't I rarely think that any literary work is perfect um but in the way that O. Henry crafted it and the way that the story is told I mean it has that it has that measure of of perfection to it so anyway you have more to say on the topic well you haven't said anything about the story yourself well I <laughs> What he said. <laughs> that doesn't work. <laughs> well, I, I don't, I mean, honestly, what you said is pretty much what I think. I mean, I think it's a, it's a fabulous story. I think that, um, I think the way I, uh, like I said at the very beginning, I think the way that they sacrifice for each other is amazing. And that's what you do when you love someone is that you sacrifice your, what is important to you to uh, get what you what is important to them, so you sacrifice ne- not ne- what you sacrifice so that you can make them happy, which is like you know what you what you do for the people you love. So I I totally get that. It makes total sense to me. This this story is just amazing, uh, amazingly simple. It's a good. I mean, it's not like you don't have to have a whole lot of brain power to understand it. It's amazingly simple, but it's amazingly powerful. Well, and the strange thing about this, if you Googled and found this story online, the version that I gave Beth is more modernized 
than the one that um, I just read you from at the uh, during this podcast. Um, there's like different versions of the story. So you have to be really careful to find the one that, um, because read, read the first paragraph that okay. you, of your version. I was going to read the last one too, to see how different that one sounded too. That one is pretty much the same. Okay. But read the first paragraph okay. of yours. $1.87. That was all. She had put it aside one cent and then another and then another in her careful buying of meat and other food. Della counted it three times, $1.87, and the next day would be Christmas. Okay, so that's the version that she got, which is a modernized version of it. This is O. Henry's original one, which I already read, but $1.87, that was all, and 60 cents of it was in pennies, which I think is a really important thing because that's that's one of those things people leave 60 pennies at O. Henry's grave. Um, pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with the silent imputation of parsimony that such close dealing implied. Three times Della counted it, $1.87, and the next day would be Christmas. That is a lot more than what I read. Yeah. A lot more. Yeah. So it, um, it doesn't, uh, I read, I read somewhere that, um, that, that in writing this, like, um, people, if what he described is that you have to remember that back in the day they went to, um, they went to different, they didn't just go to a grocery store where they bought all their stuff. They went to the butcher and they went to the mm -hmm. place to buy this and they went to the place to buy this. Right. So he had to talk to all these people and to, and the counter, get her pennies, like um, deal with them, barter with them and try to get her mm -hmm. money so that it would be lower than what she reads the last paragraph of your version. I want to okay. compare it to the one that I have. Okay. Here. My last paragraph is the Magi, as you know, were wise men, wonderfully wise men who brought gifts to the newborn Christ child. They were the first to give Christmas gifts. Being wise, their gifts were doubtless wise ones. And here I have told you the story of two children who were not wise. Each sold the most valuable thing he owned in order to buy a gift for the other. But let me speak a last word to the wise of these days. Of all who give gifts, these two were the most wise. Of all who give and receive gifts, such as they are the most wise. Everywhere they are the wise ones. They are the magi. Yeah, the language there is, again, very modernized. Um, here's the thing. Here's my, here's my theory about, um, because um, I, I, would, I would guess that O. Henry was paid per, for word count. Um, just like Charles Dickens knew when he was writing something, he wrote, he knew that he had to have so many words for an issue of one of his, one of his, uh, one of his chapters of, of his books. So he wrote for word count. And I'm sure that O. Henry um, was very aware of, of word count when he was writing something too, because I'm sure that was pretty much what uh, he was probably paid a hundred dollars a week for so many words. Mm -hmm. um, so, um, so the language that he uses is very is a person who's very aware of how many words he's using to say something. Now, I'm not saying that he he inflates 
his prose simply to um, meet that word count at all. But he has such a way, he, the way that he expresses himself is so indicative of, of, of an O. Henry story. And what you read me is a little bit more anemic. Um, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's more condensed, it's shorter, Mm -hmm. um, and it's, and it's much more contemporary sounding. Um, and I think it sort of loses Mm -hmm. the, the essence of, of, of O. Henry Mm -hmm. and O. Henry's prose, Mm -hmm. um, which, which, um, I think is really sad. So, so those of you that have not read The Gift of the Magi or not familiar with it, make sure that you find um, the original um, Gift of the Magi. Where which, did you find yours? Well, I, I just Googled it. Mm-hmm. And then I, I printed out the one that I gave you and I read it. And I was like, boy, that's not the way that I remember it. And so I went and I looked up another version and got close. And the way that the clue that um, I would, that the version that I had originally found was not the original was the fact that it didn't mention the fact that 60 cents of the money that pennies. she were, were pennies mm-hmm. doesn't even mention it right. in your version right um so i was like that's that's not right it's that that 60 cents that's those 60 pennies are really important right. um so that's how i sort of re- i sort of realized that um somehow someone had modernized mm-hmm. um the gift of the magi which you know why would you do that that's sort of like modernizing shakespeare which i think is sort of never should be done you know or modern maybe modernizing chaucer for the reader is more understandable um but it still also detracts from the language and the poetry when you're talking about it so anyway so now is it time to rate the christmas lit okay yeah we can rate the christmas lit all right all right all right oh okay so um anyway it is time it is that time in the podcast where my co-host and I rate what we've read from one to five Tiny Tims. One Tiny Tim being the worst, um, Tim sells his crutch to buy Mrs. Cratchit cough medicine, but Mrs. Cratchit dies of whooping cough before Tim can give it to her. Five Tiny Tims being the best, Scrooge gives Tiny Tim a gold-plated crutch, and Tiny Tim sells his scarf to buy Scrooge a subscription to the Gruel of the Month Club. Rule of the Month Club. Rule of the Month Club. That yes. was nice. That was nice. Thank you very much. All right. So, um, Beth, how many Tiny Tims did the Gift of the Magi earn from you? Now, normally, <laughs> I vote, and then I change yes, my mind do. after you voted. You are not changing my mind. Okay. This well, time. you need to. You need to. Instead of just saying how many it is, you have to sort of give me your rationale. This is five Tiny Tims. Five. Five Tiny Tims because this is, like you said, the perfect story. This has earned five Tiny Tims. There is nothing in this story that could make it better. There's nothing in this story that there's nothing that you could do to make this story better. I stand by my five Tiny Tims. Five Tiny Tims. Five Tiny Tims. I think that I think that uh, Scrooge can give Tiny Tim a gold-plated crutch. And he can sell it to give him a Rule of the Month Club subscription. I stand by my five Tiny Tims. Okay. Um, so, I, now, now just let me question that for a second. Okay. Uh, not that I'm trying to change your mind or anything. Okay. 
Um, so that little that little thing, and because it's it's not a modern short story. A modern short story, you know, doesn't hinge on that like twist at the end. You know, right. like oh my god, uh-huh. you know that happened, right? right. So um, so and the language again is is fairly um, strikes me as fairly like late 19th century, early 20th century prose. That doesn't in it, it, like doesn't bother me at all. Doesn't bother you at all. Nope. Okay. All right. Well, um, so again, let me reason through. I, I like to provide my rationale before I give my my how many tiny Tims. Okay. Um, I think that the fact that this story has endured as long as it has, and that, you know, even people that might never have read um read The Gift of the Magi know the story of the gift of the magi even people that have never read the original short story although i don't know how you could get out of high school and not have read the gift of the magi because it's one of those things that high school english teachers will force on you you know at some time during your high school career to read it at the holiday season um so um and i don't think that that twist at the end is really one of those really kind of famous twists that you don't see coming. You know, everything in the story seems to lead up to that that kind of revelation at the end, you know. I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem well, with that at all. I'm not saying that I do either. Okay. What I'm saying is that the story seems to prepare you for what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's obvious that these this couple loves each other you know, really, really deeply and that they want to give each other the best Christmas that they can. And so this whole idea of sacrifice, uh, sacrificing for love is, um, is a really important and I think really beautifully illustrated in, in the gift of the Magi. So, um, that being said, um, in in thinking about how many tiny Tims this short story should get, um, I still find myself deeply emotionally affected when I read this story, especially when I come to that last paragraph where she he talks about, you know, um, the the sacrifice that these two, um, this young couple has made for each other. So, um, that being said, um, my I'm going to give this one tiny Tim. I'm just kidding. It's, it's five tiny Tims. I was going to say, you are insane. You should, you should have seen her look, well, the look on her face when I said one tiny Tim. No, this is definitely one of those five tiny Tim stories. It's sort of, you know, it, it's such it's such a uh, perennial Christmas classic that you see and appears over and over and over that um, sort of like, you know, yes, Virginia, there is a Santa Claus, you know. Everybody can quote lines from Yes, Virginia, There is a Santa Claus, and everybody knows the story of 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 the gift of the Magi. So, yeah, for me, it's um, it's it's five tiny Tims. Great. And now that Della and Jim have sold off their prized possessions, it's time to create our own Christmas lit. I honor Christmas in my heart, and I'll try and keep it all the year. I live in the past, the present, and the future. I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. 
Uh, the lessons that they teach that time in the Lit for Christmas party when your hosts pick up their pens and try to write some drunken Christmas poetry. This month, it is the lessons that O. Henry teaches. My husband is going to give you a writing prompt based on a passage from the Gift of the Magi, and then we're going to write for 15 minutes. And then after 15 minutes, um, Beth and I will share what we have written. But we don't want to write alone, so grab whatever you write with, and once you hear the prompt, pause the podcast, set a timer for 15 minutes, and write. So gather up a $1.87, buy yourself another drink if you need to, um, and it is time to write. So, um, yeah, let me um, let me talk about what my prompt is going to be. I got to get my notebook open here. And by notebook, I have the, Beth knows I've been writing in this huge book for for many, many, over a year now. Um, but anyway, um, so this prompt is based upon that first paragraph of The Gift of the Magi. And I know that we've read it and Beth read her version of it, but I want to read it again just so that everybody has it fresh in their mind. Um, so this is... The first paragraph by O. Henry of The Gift of the Magi. One dollar and eighty-seven cents. That was all. And sixty cents of it was in pennies. Pennies saved one and two at a time by bulldozing the grocer and the vegetable man and the butcher until one's cheeks burned with the silent imputation of parsimony that such a close dealing implied. Three times Della counted it, $1.87, and the next day would be Christmas. So that's the opening of it. And so I think, I mean, I may be wrong, but I think perhaps when you reach a certain age um, in your life, um, we've all been at that point at some point in our lives where we have ideas of what we want to get someone for Christmas or people from Christmas, and you don't have a lot of money to do it with, right? Um, and so you're, you're faced with these kinds of choices of how you are going to give someone that you love or some people that you love um, something that sort of represents how much that you love them, right? Mm -hmm. And so what I want you to do is I want you to write about that time in your life when you didn't have a whole lot of money at Christmas and how you responded to that lack of money in order to um, maybe um, find a present for someone that meant a great deal to you, how you went, what, what happened that, at that time. So here's it. Here it is. Um, you've got that prompt. Um, pause the podcast for 15 minutes and um, and write for 15 minutes based on that prompt. And um, we will see you at the end of that time. And uh, so here we go. Pause away and uh, get yourself another drink or whatever you need to do. Put on some Perry Como and start writing.
That is 15 minutes, and that went by faster than a bottle of scotch in O'Henry's apartment. And I'm pretty sure we didn't write anything close to the gift of the Magi, and at least I, I know that I didn't. So, um, Beth, would you like to go first? Nope. <laughs> Tough, go first. <laughs> nope. Okay. One Christmas, a friend of mine was having a baby What's shower. What's the title? I don't have a title. You know, I hate titles. I don't have a title. Give it a title. The Gift of the Beth. Oh, Lord. Never mind. Okay, go ahead. One Christmas, a friend of mine was having a baby shower. Martin and I had Celeste, and we had very little money to spare. I was getting wick from the government to buy formula and baby food for Celeste. We needed every penny that came in. I had no idea how I was going to buy my friend a gift. I thought and thought and thought about it, racked my brain about it. We could barely afford diapers ourselves, so that was out. I didn't have any money to get a, the baby a new outfit. I wanted, de I desperately wanted, I, I desperately wanted to get some, to go to the shower and, because my friend had been such a help when I had Celeste. I really wanted to thank her by getting her something nice. I went to our local St. Vincent de Paul store, desperate to find something I could afford. I found a cute boy's top for 25 cents, so that I could do. Then I saw a basket, and I thought I could put the shirt in the bottom of the basket. But what would I put in the basket? I decided that I would give my friend some of my precious baby food. I knew I had enough to spare to give away three jars to my friend. I hoped that would be enough. I used some Christmas wrap for my bundle. I hoped she would not think it was dumb. I was a nervous wreck when I went to the shower. When she came to my gift, I said a short prayer that she would be okay with it. She, op she opened it and her eyes lit up. Everyone loved the gift. They thought it was um, so clever how I had used the little shirt as a lining for the basket. I was so relieved. And that day, I sacrificed something precious to me for someone I loved, and I was loved in return, and it has touched me ever since. Hmm. You can't come up with the title for that? No. Well, ever since I was in, ever since I was in college, I've had a hard time with titles. And then Martin used to make fun of me because my titles he sucked. And make he always fun used of to, you. and he always used to go ahead and give me the titles because he never thought my titles were very good. So I'm harmed and and um, I'm I've been beaten down many times by him. So I don't even come up with titles anymore. It was a painful experience. Obviously, I've never gotten over it. Mm. That's why I don't come up with titles. So, what did you write? I'm sure you gave it a good title. Mine is called Watches and Hair. Pocket Watches and Hair. We had nothing. Nothing in our savings account. No nest egg or Christmas club. We were living on chicken noodle casserole and ramen. And Christmas was coming. I had no pocket watch to hawk. My wife had no hair to cut and sell. Oh, Henry was not going to sit down and write us out of desperation. One night, I picked up my journal, pen, started writing. It was a poem about making Christmas wreaths, twine biting into the creases of my palms, making them bleed. I wrote about a statue of the Virgin Mary in a winter cemetery, how she glowed like moonlight 
her hands outstretched, catching snow and starlight. I wrote about a child's headstone, parents in their grief simply having two words chiseled into the marble, beloved son. I wrote that poem, put it in some cheap picture frames, gave it to family and friends, ashamed at the parsimony of the gift, as O. Henry says. It was what we could do that Christmas, a magi moment where paper was more precious than gold. Yep, I remember that Christmas. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Um, anyway, um, yeah, so now that you've heard, um, what Beth, and, well, well, you've heard Beth and myself humiliating ourselves by reading the backwash of what we wrote, and yeah, I don't know if it was backwash or not, you know what you just wrote with us hopefully is much, much better than what you've just heard us read. So please paste what you wrote in the comments to this episode or email it to litforchristmas at gmail.com. And we will read what you send us on our next episode. Speaking of next episode. I know you. You, you are the ghost of Christmas yet to come. You will show me the shadows of things that have not happened, but will happen in the time before us. That's a new spirit, ghost of the future. Oh, I fear you more than any specter I've seen. For September, in honor of the, pro the approach of spooky season, we will be reading Louise Erdrich's ghostly novel, The Sentence which Beth has been reading and still has not read, even though she's had the book for two months. You know what? You're judging me, and I don't like it when you judge me. Not judging. So See, you go pick yourself months. up a copy of the sentence, but you do not have two months to read it. You have until September, the end of September. Right. Uh, your invitation is already in the mail. Your invitation is already in the mail. I still can't talk today. I'm still drunk. Your invitation is already in the mail for September's Lit for Christmas party, which will drop hopefully on September 24th. Join us in a month as we get lit for Christmas again.
for coming to our little yuletide shindig. The theme for this show is Jingle Bells Jazzy Style by Julius H., used courtesy of Pixabay. And the Lit for Christmas writing music is A Christmas Treat by Magic 828, also used courtesy of Pixabay. All music, sounds, audio clips, and quotes in this podcast are the property of their individual copyright holders. They are used solely for the purposes of commentary and review. No copyright infringement is intended. Tomorrow morning, drink lots of water. Go to the library and check out some Christmas books. Visit the liquor store and stock up on Christmas cheer. Your invitation is already in the mail for next month's Lit for Christmas party. The tree will be lit, and so will we. Let's keep the Christmas spirits flowing all year long. <laughs>